You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Samuel Watkinson. Samuel studied history in university in New Zealand and has since taken courses in theology. He is interested in the topic of theology broadly and also in the topic of Christian universalism, and I am happy to get his perspective. Welcome, Samuel, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks for inviting me, David. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, why don't we get started by you telling us something about your spiritual journey? Sure. I I guess I could begin by saying that I live in New Zealand and I've been raised um, in the New Zealand Baptist tradition, which is somewhat homogenous. I mean, like there's some differences amongst, you know, we all don't agree, but generally speaking, we're kind of moderate Arminian type kind of Baptist. So not the, not your typical sort of Southern <laughs> fundamentalist Baptist in America. Okay. Yeah. So that's my ecclesial background. So when I was about 15, I became interested in the topic of apologetics more. So um, through, through friends at church, um, this is in Wellington where I, where I used to live and yeah, naturally became disposed to, you know, defend the Christian faith as I understood it, you know, reading books like I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by um, Norman Geisler and Frank Dweck, which is a book which I now regard as pretty, pretty bad. Um, but, <laughs> you know, th- th- that's what you do when you're sort of 15, 16 and you are a somewhat argumentative person who, you know, likes to argue with other people online, right? Um, when you're but yeah, so, but then I began, when I went to university, we actually began studying uh, piano performance, classical piano performance degree, but that changed f- due to health issues. But I, yeah, I did, um, I began doing a Bachelor of Arts in History, right, was my, my, was my major. And then I also began doing, as you mentioned, like in the introduction, um, I've done, this is when I began doing my first papers in theology. Um, mm-hmm. so I did a paper on the history of Christianity, like a survey paper, a general history paper on the history of Christianity. And that opened me up to doing, well, becoming interested in theology, Christian theology as a discipline and as a, you know, but also just as a way of thinking, right, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that made me do further papers, you know, introductory to the Old and New Testaments and Second Temple Judaism and a few other topics. Yeah, I mentioned all that, I guess, because that's what made me more open to, I guess, biblical scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and challenging some of the views that I just held to without questioning. Like, um, you know, like when I was a teenager, when I was 15, I mentioned... You know, I used to argue with some people online, you know, more, which I don't do as much nowadays, um, at least in the same way. Um, 
so you know the creationism versus evolution debate you know everyone mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big thing uh mainly in america but it's also become you know exported to other countries like new zealand as well so yeah that was just when i be- you know began studying like genesis and the old testament in its ancient near eastern context that made me far less hostile to evolution you know for one but also just you know reading genesis um and the old testament for itself you know rather than imposing one's preconceptions and what one wants the text to do right um and one particular influence on me for the old testament was peter ends who you might have heard of he's a um He's an Old Testament yeah, he scholar. Does the, he, does, he does the Bible right. for Normal People podcast. Yes, yes, yes. So I've, I've loved since my, really my, I guess my second year of university is when I sort of begun to read and listen to, you know, Pete Enns' podcast and read his books and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so that's um, how I, I guess I became more influenced by what's often called more progressive Christianity or at least non-conservative Christian, you know, not conservative evangelical traditions, although people were kind of deconstructing or, you know, moving out of that kind of prior background, right? It's a little bit about my exposure to biblical scholarship. And eventually I got to David Bentley Hart, who you've interviewed, and, you know, um, we, we both are fans of right he was like the my main influence um in getting interested in christian universalism it was due to reading his translation of the new testament in 2017 and then obviously later i read his book that ought to be saved but it was mainly yeah reading the new testament translation which i later have disagreements with heart on <laughs> particularly regarding the translation of like ionios and um but the point is, like, back then, he was, like, my main formative influence in getting into the topic. And so after that, I, you know, I began to read more other other philosophers and theologians like Thomas Talbot, Lowe Romali, the evangelical universalist, whose name escapes me, I can't believe. Well, uh, Gregory, Robin Perry. Robin Perry, yes, Robin Perry, of course, yeah. But it was written uh, under, he wrote it under the pen name of Gregory MacDonald. Right. I also, you know, read, like... McDonald himself, you know, has unspoken sermons and a whole lot of other stuff I've read. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got into the topic of universalism. But yeah, is there anything else you wanted to me to say about like about my spiritual journey? I guess. Um, well, when we were yeah. chatting a bit before we got to recording, you mentioned that you weren't particularly surprised to find out that there had been figures in early Christianity who had been thinking along these lines. So what yeah. was that like for you to start to read some of these early church fathers who were sympathetic to this viewpoint? I guess it just wasn't too shocking or surprising to me because bef- before learning about certain, like the, the the names of the certain church fathers, like Gregory of Nyssa and Origen and so on, who were like part of this minority tradition of apocatastases, I, I've, I'd read other church fathers but i before um like augustine but i but i've also had read certain yeah more pro, you know like progressive christian authors like Ends, mm-hmm. 
a few others who introduced me to a way of thinking about God that really stressed his unconditional love and opposed this picture, which you can find in both the Old and New Testaments in certain places, although it's obviously challenged as well, you know, in other places. This, this image of God, conditional love, you know, like if you do this, then I will reward you. If you don't do this, then I won't, then I'll punish you or, or you know, won't love you as much as if you followed what I tell you. you no, know, so this way of thinking, this mentality, I already knew that it was like nonsense and in some ways challenged in the Bible. <laughs> so if it was mm-hmm. challenged in the Bible, I thought, you know, surely there's people in the Christian tradition who would have recognized this, you know. <laughs> You know, so that's that's I guess the reason why I wasn't too surprised is because I already was aware that within the Bible itself, there's people challenging this kind of way of thinking, right? This this tradition, if you will, traditional way of thinking. So yeah, so that's I guess the main reason why. Well, one of the things I've been doing is giving people a chance to uh, respond to a critique of Christian universalism that appears in Lee Strobel's latest book called A Case for Heaven, published by Zondervan in 2021. And uh, that critique occurs mainly in chapter eight, but there's also in chapter seven of the book, some thoughts about uh, what he considers the traditional doctrine of eternal conscious torment. And so when I was visiting with you, you, you said that you had some some things that came to you when you were reading that chapter seven. I wonder if we could just start there. Yeah, sure. So yeah, just to give people an idea, I, this is like, there's two chapters in this book, which talk about how even the whole box on case of heaven or whatever, the first chapter, they both, he, he interviews Paul Copen and them, but like the first chapter is supposed to be like a defense of the traditional view of eternal conscious torment, which by the end of the chapter and the next chapter, Strobel apparently finds very convincing, quote unquote, <laughs> quote unquote, a very, a very convincing kind of defense, which obviously I don't think is convincing at all. But anyway, so the way he, yeah, there were several points in this first chapter where he's into he's interviewing Copen about how to make sense of this traditional view of how, which I found at once predictable because I'm sort of familiar with like patterns of how even conservative evangelicals respond to like universalism or people's reaction to it or whatever but also yeah just in somewhat annoying like the the fact that people still yeah this is still quite a dominant way of speaking of people's general reactions or whatever so i'll just mention one section so of this chapter so he talked Strobel asks Copen do you think the traditional view of how repels a lot of people from God and then he says yes but that needs some qualification but then he says for some people no matter what philosophical perspective we give their visceral of reaction of will nevertheless prevail and then he talks about how the sociologists Robert Bella and Alan Bloom pointed out that Freedom has become the new absolute. And they make this common but somewhat trite claim that, you know, how violates the quote-unquote absolute of relativism. <laughs> to many in our culture, you know, the existence of how would undermine an individual's freedom and so on. Yeah, so what he's trying to say is that, you know, hell is a 
topic that makes people uncomfortable, but then he tries to get him to push back against the fact that it's uncomfortable by making like three points. So he says, first, Jesus is considered to be the outstanding moral and spiritual authority in history, and he's taught on hell. And then he says, if God is, you know, the authority, we should expect his ways to be more finely tuned than our own limited moral perspectives. Um our perspective may be skewed by our own self-interest or because our cultural lens clouds our notions of justice or fairness. And then a second point somewhat relevant about, you know, other cultures don't find hell problematic. Why are you imposing your individualistic Western kind of idea, you know? And then the third is somewhat, well, it's just to do with, you know, justice. We all crave justice, blah, blah, blah. And then he refers to this, the remain, this evangelical Romanian pastor, Richard, Richard Wormbrandt's story of being imprisoned under the communist regime and how apparently when a man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there's no reason to be human. <laughs> um, so the reason I just want to mention, I just want to talk, say something about these three responses is because I'll just go one by one. So like the first, like Jesus considered to be, the authority yet if he taught it then you know we must just follow what jesus said because he's the authority you know the problem with this way of thinking is it's it's just kind of an appeal to an infallible authority but like without questioning yourself like whether you would want whether it's even, even rational to assent to in the first place right so i mean i understand that if you're like an evangelical who holds not just that Jesus is infallible, but the Bible is infallible, you know, on errand, then you would just have no problem and have, you know, accepting those two things. But obviously for someone who isn't an evangelical like him, and, and, and apparently he's addressing here the culture, you know, the dominant supposedly relativist culture, which has a, a moral and an emotional response with how, right? If, he's, if those are the people he's addressing, then, you can't just assume that, you know, the Bible is infallible you know? <laughs> and it infallibly just accept what it, what it says. Right. So that's the first like problem, but without getting into uh, certain issues of to do with whether Jesus is really infallible or not, because I just go to the second point of like, well, well, like say before you jump to that second point, yeah. well, you know, there is a situation that you know, Jesus yeah. teaches about hell. Well, now mm-hmm. we're assuming that the English word, the freight that it carries is somehow obvious yeah. and that that was exactly what what Jesus meant when but we don't get to understand that there's there is a word behind right. in the actual text gehenna and that there was a long tradition behind that word and it's highly unlikely that the the people the Jewish people of of his day if they heard the term gehenna would have automatically thought of an eternal place of torture in the way that modern people think of eternity, because they tended to think in terms of ages or, um, you know, periods of time. It just doesn't give us any background or context into how the people during Second Temple Judaism might have been thinking about these things. Yeah. So that's the other yeah problem is that Gehenna almost certainly wouldn't have evoked eternal conscious torment and Jesus's Jewish audience's mind, although it, it might have just at least just suggested, you know, some notion of God punishing his enemies, 
you know, in some vague sense, you know, whatever. Like that might have been annihilation, perhaps, if that's like the dominant image that is used. But it's even then it's mixed, you know, the images that Jesus uses to speak of. Yeah, like right in the in the in the sermon yeah. on the on, on the mount there in Matthew five, he's talking about some things that could lead to judgment, and he references Gehenna. But then he also mm-hmm. tells, uh, he says, well, it's like somebody that's being taken to court. You know, you should make things right with your accuser before you get to court, because if you don't, the judge could hand you over the jailer and you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. And so even in the midst of all of that, you sort of have this, you have the talk about hell or Gehenna, but then you also have the talk of a prison where if it comes down to it, you can somehow pay the last penny. So, you know, we've got all these metaphors that are that are moving around all this symbolic language and if it said, well, Jesus is the one that taught about hell more than anybody else, you can sort of assume it, it could lead the hearer to think, oh, well, Jesus must have taught exactly what uh, modern evangelicals mean when they use the word hell. And mm-hmm. I just think it's not nearly that clear. Yeah, that's a good point as well. But yeah, returning to like his point, so like he says, our perspective may be skewed by our own self-interest or because our cultural lenses cloud our notions of justice or fairness. I mean, perhaps that's true, but then also you could argue that contemporary American evangelical cultural lenses are clouding their notions of justice and fairness, particularly in, you know, a, a, gun, cult, a gun culture, you know, and also a culture where there's a huge problem of unjust imprisonment of um, African-American persons in, in particular, right? But in general, the prison system's, you know, completely stuffed up there. So the problem is that you can't just say that people who are, viscerally having a visceral emotional reaction to the doctrine the traditional view are being affected by some some abstract liberal individualistic kind of you know cultural lens you know without Mm -hmm. acknowledging the degree to which their own cultural lens is, is actually quite evidently tainting the way in which they emphasize retributive punishment over restorative punishment most notably you know but then I guess they would then, to that respond, you know, there's a long tradition in the church, which is not, which is pre-modern, which also emphasizes retributive punishment, you know, whether, and then to which I would say, you know, but then there's also a counter tradition, which you can find somewhat in the Bible in some places, like in Job, which challenges, uh, maybe Ecclesiastes as well, challenges this kind of mentality. And, And then some places in Jesus and Paul, but then obviously that long, that tradition of, Apocatastasis as well, you know, from Clementine and Al, Origin of Alexandria to Gregory of Nyssa to Maximus the Confessor to Isaac the Syrian, you know, who were pre-modern, right? Um, and mm-hmm. yet also you can't say that they were influenced by, like their, their cultural lens didn't clouded their notions of justice or fairness. Because so, the other point was like, you know, you're imposing your Western judgment on the non-Western cultures. But all these people, most of these people didn't come from Western cultures. Mm-hmm. The most prominent strand of the pocket justice comes from Alexandria, you know, which is in uh, Egypt, you know, the East, Eastern um, Middle East. So, and in Syria, more, yeah, as well. So that's also, yeah, shows you that Strobel and, you know, other evangelicals are just either not aware of where the most prominent, you know, counter tradition on eschatology comes from, or they're just, they might be aware, but they just, they're not completely trans, honest, honest, transparent about 
how it would affect you know what they say. Um, well, it seems it, it, the argument right. seems a bit the argument seems a bit in house yeah. there. Yeah, like yeah. an argument that would get a room full of evangelicals who are oh, yeah. affirming the eternal conscious torment viewpoint. They would they would all kind of want to nod their heads at this. But uh, how mm-hmm. effective that argument is going to be with people that are outside of an evangelical fundamentalist tradition. That, oh, yeah, that might yeah. not might not be as persuasive. Right, yeah, and then that's another, I mean, I don't want to spend too long talking on this particular section of the book, but I just want to briefly say that this is a pattern that you find with Lee Strabble's works in general, is that, you know, he has a series of the case for books, you know, the case for Christ, the case for whatever, you know, the case for faith, the case for, you know, and, and all of them supposedly are appealing to the skeptic, but really they're just for evangelicals, you know, to go on the defensive and on the offensive, you know, <laughs> against the skeptics. Like, that's the the real purpose of a lot of these books, including this book. It's not really to, primarily it's not to actually try to convince the skeptic, although that's they might ho- vainly hope that. <laughs> it's really just to defend, you know, the in-house uh, evangelical camp, right? And th- that's clear just from the way, as you say, the way in which he articulates the, the, the questions you know, in this kind of, like Strobel's asking like a supposedly sceptical question and then the, the question, um, the person who answers the question, Paul Copen in this case, answers in a kind of predictable way. So he's not really sceptical, you know, <laughs> he's trying to pretend to be, you know, just to, anyway, that's a, a side point about the mode of engagement, you know, and all this, the, the rhetoric or the style, right, of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um so the third point was, I guess this, this was the point that I guess annoyed me the most, uh, but also just points to a, a deeper issue. Um, so he cites the, is this quote by Richard Wormbrandt, who's a guy that a lot of evangelicals appeal to when they speak of like the persecution of Christians and, you know, certain contexts in the world. So the quote is, uh, he, this is from Wormbrandt, he says, uh, quote, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe. When a man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there's no reason to be human. There's no restraint from the depths of evil that is in man. The communist torturers often said there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. And then he says in response, wow, that's stark. Copen continues, and it's logical if there are no definitive consequences for evil. So so yes, it, it is stark what Wimbrandt says, but it's also like ridiculous i mean so but when he says a man when a man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil there's no reason to be human really i mean <laughs> so he's basically saying that you need to be rewarded for good and punished for evil in order to like that's the most essential if, if you don't if you're not thinking in that way then you're not human or you're not there's no reason to be human there's no restraint from people being evil i mean that's just I mean, it's a common way of thinking, you know, what I call like the traditional, conditional way of thinking of like love or relationships or whatever. But it's, we know it's false. I mean, just through experience, you know, and, and especially so in, in our culture, the reason why you do good and refrain from doing evil is not because you want to be rewarded and punished, but because you, you know, believe that it's good in itself, you know, intrinsically good, you know, to treat humans with dignity. I recently yeah. did an interview with Ryan McLaren on his new, on his new book, <laughs> Do I Stay Christian? 
Mm. And he says, you know, part of the thing that we have to do in the Christian faith is take a hard look with how the Christian faith has been made mm. to be behind so much violence yeah. in history. And some of the, the, the cruelest tortures ever invented were invented by Christians who were torturing heretics who, mm. they, who they thought were heretics, and they were doing to them what they imagined that God would eventually do to them forever. So there was actually no bounds to the cruelty that they used in order to, you know, in order to punish these people. And what's been amazing to me is how the religion of Christianity, which is based on Jesus, I, I have a friend who's an atheist, and he said, you know, Jesus taught, I mean, one of the most, the clearest things you can know about Jesus is that he taught nonviolence. So how in the world has Christianity become such a violent religion in history? And so it is just amazing how, you know, like you could say, well, athe you know, atheism is dangerous because then people will do whatever they want, you know, they won't have any reason to limit their evil. But fundamental, once you get fundamentalism that's powered by the belief that heretics cause people to go to a hell of eternal torment, well, people will commit all kinds of violence trying to prevent that outcome to happen or that they can become afraid that if they don't engage in war or some type of violence, that perhaps even God will hold them accountable for not standing up against the heretics and the evildoers. Yeah. There's one other... So yeah, there's one other general. So there's a mentality that I can see in this kind of that's revealed in this this you know Wormbrandt quote whatever, which I think's talking a little bit worth talking about a little bit more. So like there's a false dichotomy. I mean, as humans in general, you know, we very instinctively think in either ors. You know, like it's either this or that. You know, whatever. And then so we often believe that a certain dichotomy is a true dichotomy rather than a false one, right? So the particular dichotomy here or the false dichotomy here is like it's it's either a conditional way of thinking where you reward and or punish right so in other words you either control the uh, evildoer by punishing them or so this is the or or libertarian this kind of uh lax libertarianism we can do what we want right so it's either a kind of puritanical morality i guess i mean not to straw man puritans, but you know, you know what I mean. You know, where you enforce a kind of moralistic, conditional way of thinking, or if you, if you, if you don't, if you just let them do whatever you know what you want, whatever they want, with with no consequences. So I think this way of thinking is precisely the problem. You know, <laughs> wherever you see it, like you know, you see it in our parenting as well. I'm actually reading a book at the moment by um, Alfie Cohn. He's a guy who um, Ko. HN believes he's written a lot of books on challenging traditional parenting, but also the tra traditional you know ideas on like competition and the way the schools are run, you know that sort of thing. But I, I bring up this because there's a book called Unconditional Parenting, which is I, I think quite a good. It's, it's an interesting thing to, to book to mention here because you know I mentioned the conditional versus unconditional way of thinking right um i think it, it, it begins in many ways with like the home you know like the, the way people are parented right um whether you are loved in an unconditional way or, or conditional way by your parents right that affects the way you view god but also the way you just view punishment as good in society right yeah i won't digress too much on that 
on that book. But uh, um, I just thought I'd mention it briefly because I think that there's an interesting tension in, in an evangelical's minds that I see sometimes, like where they might not, they, so in parenting, they might realize that this, this conditional way of parenting is wrong. You know, you must unconditionally love your child and you shouldn't do, you shouldn't parent this way. But then they don't, they're not consistent. They don't apply it consistently to how they view God as a parent, right? Does that make sense? So they don't go all the way in, in drawing out the implications of... Well, one of the things that I've experienced as I've talked with people yeah. is that it was actually having children that made yeah. them doubt the picture of God that they had been shown in evangelicalism because right. they right. begin to realize that they would never parent mm. their children the way that God was supposedly parenting humanity because yes. while they might correct their child or have to mm. correct their child... They would never correct their child to the point of their demise, and they would mm. certainly never put their child in an unrecoverable place of torment. And so what they began to think is, okay, well, what, what do loving parents do? Well, loving parents obviously do correct their children, and they can put them in time out or you know, take privileges away from them. But the whole point is with the good parent, ultimately restoration is in mind. They don't get any joy out of doing this. They're just trying to break through to the child to get them to have an understanding of the yeah. right way to be and, and, and the right path that they should be on in life. And once they start thinking about that, then they think, well, it wouldn't, wouldn't God, in a sense, be doing something similar? Mm. Yeah. But I also, because you mentioned timeouts. I mean, I don't want to like go into details with on the topic of parenting, because that's obviously a side topic, but... Mm -hmm. I think that even in like the issue of like giving, say you have an evangelical parent who realizes that corporal punishment is wrong, right? So they're not as extreme or ultra conservative in enforcing a kind of like a physically violent kind of punishment on their children, right? So they realize that that's wrong, but then they still enforce a conditional way of parenting where they, they think that it's good to like, you know, put children and, you know, give them time out if they don't do a certain thing, right? I, still, I think there's a problem still in that. I think in still maintaining that kind of mentality, you know, children must suffer. They must be punished if they do something wrong. I think that's still wrong. Like, I, I still think that's, like, a problem, right, and that needs to be challenged. Um, otherwise, I don't think it's likely that an evangelical will ever see the problems in their view of, the traditional view of hell. Right, because if you're still assuming that this, this picture where as a parent, you know, God, God, if God's a parent, you know, like a loving parent, then, you know, he, like our parents will do what's good for, out of, you know, do what's good for us out of love. Right. But people who have had abusive parents know that um, from the experience that everything that their parents say that they do is supposed to be out of their, you know, for their own good or out of love, isn't really, you know, out of, it doesn't actually look, you know, to their concerns or their needs, right? It's all about right. just punish, punishing them, right? So, yeah. So what I think is important to direct people's attention to is not so much about whether a parent says that they're unconditionally loving their child, 
because you can say one thing, but whether the child actually feels unconditionally loved is the most is another thing, and that's more important, right? If, if, if that makes sense. So it's it's about attending to the needs of how the of the child and how they actually experience the love, rather than what the parent supposedly the, the intentions. So you know, parents can have good intentions, but yet they can also, despite having good intentions, actually cause suffering. Yeah. One of the issues that gets involved in parenting and uh, if you yeah. imagine what God is trying to accomplish with people yeah. is if somehow people are being cruel and they apparently don't have any sense of remorse or empathy, then God would need to, if they don't somehow learn that lesson in this lifetime, mm. God would have to find some way to help them experience to experience true remorse and, and empathy in some way that's maybe beyond this uh, realm of, yeah. of our experience. That's why I always like the, uh, the tale of Scrooge mm. is because what happens is he experiences, his eyes are opened. And when his eyes are opened, he experiences true remorse. And he, re he experiences remorse for, for his past life. And he experiences empathy that he didn't have before. And so he's not physically beaten or anything, mm. but he has shown the truth. I heard I heard it said one time, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And so if there is a truth, if there's a hard truth about yourself that you have not been able to see some way, and you need mm -hmm. to see that and feel it and react to it, then then God would need to create whatever, give you whatever experience you needed in order to be able to see the truth so you could be set free. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in principle, I agree with that as a, as a Christian, you know, but I'm, I'm thinking of like people who might not be Christians or might have problems still with this picture of, you know, God allowing you to kind of suffer in order to get eventually to win you over, you know, whatever. Cause you know, there's, I mean, it's, it's not just even, it's not just evangelicals who, have this free will defense of, you know, they say that, you know, that, well, that, they say that, that you know, coercive or whatever, but I'm just, you know, um, some people, atheists or agnostics, you know, also have a problem with not universalism per se, but I mean like certain pictures of universalism, which might, I'm not saying this is like just to the ones that you believe in or other people, you know, we know like David Bentley Hart believe in, but like certain pictures might still sound like God as a parent who, you know, enforces tough love, you know, that people talk about, you know, like parents giving you tough love or whatever, you know. Or, well, you know, I mean, the, the picture, yeah. the picture of universalism that yeah. people react to when I talk about it is a picture okay. I've never heard anybody articulate. And what mm. they think universalism means is, oh, okay, yeah. well, there's a heaven and pe everybody just goes there and they just do whatever they want. If they, <laughs> they were, they're evil right. here, well, they'll be evil there. If they right. hurt people here, they'll they'll hurt people there. And so heaven is just kind of a chaos overseen by a doting kind of grandparent who just smiles and winks at what every what everybody does. Mm. Which I don't think is that's not certainly what Origen uh, or Clement or uh, Gregory of Nyssa or any of those folks were talking about. They were talking about a uh, God who would use the coming aeons to accomplish whatever purification was necessary in whatever way that was necessary. They were just confident that, that 
that finally at the end of the ages, God would be all in all and whatever purification yeah. needed to happen yeah. would right. happen in every case. Mm-hmm. You want to move on to maybe some other topics? Um, yeah. I, I, so that was one of the sections of that chapter, which we talked about for a little bit, um, that I thought worth be responding to just because as I th- say, I, the more I think about universalism and other people's reactions to it, the more I think that the core issue really is, you know, this false dichotomy between either God as a conditional parent, you know, can, who conditionally punishes or rewards, or God as like a lex, you know, lets you do whatever you want. You know, there's no, there's no real punishment for sins and there's no moral order or rhyme or reason or whatever you know justice isn't vindicated and all that sort of thing but as you know you said just self you know like that is as the the universalists in the christian tradition have recognized it that's a false dichotomy you know <laughs> this might link to another topic we could talk about it's broached a little bit in the next chapter when paul copen tries to like respond to universalism so this is the language in scripture this is the question of you know the language of script in scripture which divides between the righteous and the wicked mm-hmm. right so you find this, obviously, in both Testaments, you know, in the Old Testament, and it follows through to the New Testament in certain places. But for one, we need to recognize that this is a kind of Jewish trope, which is supposed, the primary purpose, as most scholars recognize, is to motivate people to repentance, right? To change their ways, right? That That's the, the main reason why there's this kind of division between, you know, yeah, which you find in the Psalms is as much as like Jesus in some places, you know, where the righteous are people who do certain things or look a certain way, right? And then the wicked, uh, the opposite, right? It's kind of just a way to, it's a simple way to motivate people to, I mean, to put it crudely, like to behave, you know, or to <laughs> follow God's commands, right? But secondly, this is the, this is the next point I want to make, it's like, it's just, we, we know that, if we take it crudely, that's a too simplistic, that's a dualistic way, you know, either it's too, it's a too simplistic way to actually account for the complexity of human experience, right? Humans don't just neatly fit into two categories. You know, they aren't just the righteous who do good things. And then the, the wicked who don't do good things. Like, you know, most people are somewhere in between. And so, so this is why people like origin, and others in the Alexandrian tradition actually complicated this 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 dualistic division. So I mean, they didn't deny it per se, but what you find someone like Maximus doing is that recognizing that there's gradations. I mean, this goes back to origin in many ways, but there's gradations where you know people might not be as well trained in the in the way of Christ. But this doesn't mean that they are consigned to eternal punishment. But it just means that they are not as developed or not as they're children, relatively speaking, like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? But then then you have people who are the next, third, the second step is kind of people. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, just to be clear, I'm thinking of in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have this threefold division between the three part, three stages of the spiritual life. So you have purification or catharsis in Greek, and then you have illumination or theoria. And then thirdly, you have theosis or, you know, union with God, right? Purification is like the first kind of step and, you know, purifying your sins. You know, people often refer to 
this is what the hoi polloi or the majority, you know, where they fit, you know. But then you have people who, who might be more advanced in the spiritual life and, you know, they might be illuminated, but they, you know, might still go back to certain sinful habits or, you know, whatever. But, and then finally you have those who are, you know, the most advanced, I guess, in the spiritual life. People, you know, saints like Francis of C.C. or, you know, all of these ascetics, really all the universalist ascetics, you know, Origin Maximus, right? The point is, like, even if you could argue that some people, um, that this righteous versus wicked division is not completely false, you know, there's some truth to it, I guess, but nevertheless, there are people within the Christian tradition, you know, who recognize that it, if you take it strictly speaking, it's not strictly speaking true. You know, there are people who fit along different, uh, the content, you know, different parts of the content. Right. Well, it kind of reminds me of the parable that Jesus told about the uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm, right. You know, so Jesus Jesus even can trouble that same category, mm-hmm. and there can be surprising outcomes to stories, <clears throat> like the rich young ruler who you know gets sent to he he ends up going away from Jesus because he can't give up his riches, and then the disciples are concerned about that because they wonder who can be saved. And well, so at that point, it looks like everything's hopeless for that guy. But then it turns out that, well, Jesus loved him. And he says that, uh, well, with humans, this is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So it is more complicated than Jesus just went around saying, okay, well, you know, God is going to throw the wicked into hell forever. And he's going to, you know, put the righteous in heaven forever. It, it, as a matter of fact, a lot of what he was talking about was the presence of the kingdom of God in their midst and who mm. was receiving it and who was not receiving it. And some of the right. people that were receiving it were surprising. And some of the people that you think were receiving it actually weren't receiving it so that the first would be last or the you know, the last would be first and the people you think would first would be last. But it, he wasn't in, in, in that context talking about some kind of eternal heaven and hell. He was talking about the kingdom of God, which was now present, and who would be receiving it, in what order it would happen. And there's even an indication that, that there would be first and last, but no no category of never, you know, that it was working its way through every everything in an unexpected kind of way. So there's lots of surprises, even when you look at the, uh, even when you look at the teaching of Jesus on that kind of simple division between the righteous yes. and the wicked. Yes, and especially in the Gospel of Luke. I, I tend to think that out of all the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke is the most universalist, or at least the most lenient in, in that direction, um, in a kind of universalist direction. With the Gospel of Matthew, I, I tend to think it's the harshest. So I I disagree with those universalists who you know, try to complicate the um, parable of the sheep and the goats by saying that the Colossiathion is referring to a kind of chastisement of the age. Or I mean, I tend to think it's, it just means... It's harsher and it means everlasting punishment. But I, I don't think this, the reason why this doesn't like deter me, you know, it doesn't bother me is because I don't believe that we should just take for gospel every single gospel writer, what they say is just, in, you know, without question, you know, we can just uncritically assume. I think there's diversity with the New Testament itself. So I think, you know, Matthew might be pretty harsh in um, his depiction of Jesus as someone who, you know, is um, and the, the reasoning for that might just be to do with like he's more 
I mean, the social cultural reason to do with experiencing persecution within the Mythian community, right? And so it's natural to kind of have more of an in-group, out-group mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is a, this is this is a good illustration yeah. of the yeah. you know the people people who come to an idea of universal reconciliation uh, yeah. don't all think about it all exactly the same way. No, there's no. some yeah you, know, you know there are some that try to reconcile every single scripture, yeah. every single problematic scripture. And there are some like yourself who would say, well, I don't know. Some of them do seem to maybe point the other way, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but you ha- finally have to make an interpretive decision for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, just as like universalists can disagree. So like, you know, we see that in scripture itself and the New Testament. So like going back to Luke. So I tend to think that out of all the New Testament um, books, so like, as I said, the, the, the there's two main texts, which I'd say are the most easily, le- you know, most easily um, support, even though I don't necessarily think they, they don't necessarily support, but they are most easily used to support eternal conscious torment or, you know, the traditional view. Those would be Matthew, Matthew 25, 46 and, you know, um, Revelation, you know, those two verses in Revelation, right? Um, and there's also that verse in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9, but whether that's one of my Paul is disputed, of course. But anyway, so the point is like, these are two voices in the canon, in the New Testament canon, right? I tend to think that Paul himself, as well as Luke, as I mentioned, the Gospel of Luke, right, tend to be voices within pretty prominent voices. I mean, Luke also at Acts, and then Paul wrote, you know, quite a lot of letters as well, right? I think mm-hmm. those are enough, you know, and those are the the voices well, are which think, are... Are you thinking of like the 15th yeah. chapter of Luke and the... In the yeah, parable of the the you know the yeah. lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, right? So those are yeah those are parables which are most easily can be easily you know used to support universalism. But it also just more broadly you know Luke, author of Luke, Luke X is someone who often speaks of the world or the cosmos kind of responding, you know, to the gospel in a positive way, right? Um, and so, like, I'm thinking of, there's also that verse, I'll have, I'll have to look it up for the exact words because I can't quite remember it off the top of my head. In Luke 3, where it speak, it's the quote, John the Baptist quoting Isaiah. Isaiah. Um, yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking of. So, like, you know, he's quoting Isaiah 40, every valley will be filled and every mountain will be low. And then in Greek, it's, in all flesh, pasa sarks, will see the salvation of God, right? So that's, I mean, you could interpret that in a universalist way. All flesh will see the salvation of God. You know, that's somewhat, or you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to interpret it in a universalist way, but I'm just saying like this, these are passages that are referring to Isaiah. Isaiah, you know, a book, particularly the second half, 40 to 66, right? Which um, Paul also <laughs> appeals to in his more universalist passages, right? So the point I'm trying to make here is that there are parts of the Old Testament which certain New Testament writers like Luke and Paul appeal to in order to argue that, or, or to, to not necessarily argue, but present a universalist or universal-leaning, you know, gospel, if that makes sense, right? So that even if they don't necessarily, it doesn't really matter as far as I'm concerned, whether they believe universalism, but, you know, either Luke and Paul, or whether that's what they're, you know, thinking. But the point is, it is a trajectory in scripture, right, which you can see growing 
to, to fruition um, in these parts in Luke and, and Paul based off appeals to the more universalist or universal, maybe universalist, I don't know, the more universal statements in the Old Testament, right? So I thought I'd just I like the way yeah. I like the way that Robin Perry talks about all yeah. this and that there's sort of an arc of the yeah. of the biblical narrative and in the generations in the first in the centuries following right. Christ people were working these things out and they were trying to put together theologies so somebody like Origen you know would try to put this all together in a way that that made sense and and people were beginning to think in more of a systematic theology kind of way and so for instance he says you know in the New Testament you won't find a really developed for instance, mm. doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. But as people reflected on the various scriptures and the experience of the what they found in the, in those um, in those writings, it became the the picture became clearer and clearer to them. Uh, so some some thinking just took a while for people to develop as they as they thought upon the scriptures, and not all of the early Christian community came to the same conclusions about all this, which is why in the in the earliest confessions of the church, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, how people thought about ultimate eschatological issues, whether apocatastasis or some thought right. maybe eternal torment or some thought annihilation, they didn't make those those kinds of things contingent on being part of the Christian community. That was left to be open. And there were people that were proponents of that had different ideas about all of that because they could they could make different arguments from what they were seeing in the scriptures. Right, and like to go to a point that we briefly talked about offline before we began recording. You know, like in these early centuries, while there may have been disagreement about what eschatological what eschatological outcome looks like, right? There was no dogmatizing going on as you later find, particularly after the Constantinian settlement in the 4th century, and even more so with Theodosius later in the 4th century and Justinian in the 5th, right? 6th century, it's just Justinian, right? Yeah, because when um, we talk about it, it was Justinian yeah. that was really behind yeah. the yeah. council, the 5th Ecumenical Council, where Origen's name was uh, added to a list of heretics. And Justinian also passed some imperial anathemas, which mm -hmm. weren't exactly, but they weren't, a part of the re the official records of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, but those imperial anathemas plus Origen's name being put in as a list in, in the list of heretics, that all kind of combined together to make medieval Christianity really focused in on the eternal conscious torment doctrine as the only acceptable way to think mm. within the church. Right, and and then yet despite that, you can actually still find diversity within um, the High mm -hmm. Middle Ages. So I'm just thinking of. Julian of Norwich is someone that a lot of universalists think was a universalist because of her statement about all shall be well in the end, right? But even if you don't have explicit statements saying that all shall be saved, what you do find, and um, I'm, I'm just, just to name a few mystics in the high Middle Ages, so you have, before Julian of Norwich, so you have, well, I mean, Francis of Assisi, obviously, uh, someone who, so, uh, yeah, if not Aquinas, you have, so after Aquinas, you have the Rhineland mystics, so the, uh, mystics who lived in the Rhineland in Germany, so the most famous of which is Meister Eckhart, right, who was a Dominican after after Aquinas, um, 
later in the 13th and early 14th century. I'm not sure there's any explicit statements which suggest he's a universalist, but at the very least, he does not at all, in all my reading of all of his work so far, ever, like, mention, or, well, he might mention, but he doesn't, like, it's not a, he doesn't talk about eternal hell, you know, like, he's, he's most famous for being someone who's a pen, or I mean, he was, he was kind of wrongly criticized as a pantheist, as many modern universalists are like David Benliart, but he's more accurately seen as a panentheist, you know, so someone who believe, you know, really tries to combat this du- duality or dualism between God and world and emphasizing this interdependence or, you know, inextricable communion between, between God and the world. Right. So that God is in. Would that, fit, it, would that fit in with the, uh, would that fit in with the idea that creation is a theophany? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the language that he uses. Um, following earlier thinkers, particularly Pseudo Dionysius, um, you know, he's very much influenced by the apophatic Christian tradition. On that point, yeah, and, and there's also other women in the same century, a little bit after Meister Eckhart. There's other women mystics, uh, Radowitch, I believe, is one. So you have, and then you have other, uh, yeah. So the uh, the Beguin. Beguin mystics is what they called more specifically. So Hedewitch, or Micht, Michtel of Magdeburg, and the other famous one is Marguerite Boret. She wrote On the Mirror of Simple Souls. This is a French mystic, right? So if you read these woman mystics, that's where you'll find uh, universalist, um, sympathetic kind of. Well, sentence. and Richard Rohr, Richard Moore really yeah. makes a lot of um, yeah. emphasis on making sure that we don't dismiss the mystic tradition within the, within Christianity, that even within Western Christendom, you have a mystic tradition, which is a much gentler and more hopeful approach to things. Yeah. You, you'll never ever find a woman mystic defending eternal hell. (laughs) I've never found one at least. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, I mean, you might find like maybe one who's like, you know, kind of, submissively just f- follows the tradition but is not like particularly exultant about it you know like oh you know this is a good thing that god punishes you know sinners or whereas you will find that obviously a lot in the men uh theologians and particularly the ones either in power or associated with those who are in power so i think that's says a lot about yeah well that reminds me of uh, the, it reminds me a little bit of the story of hannah whitehall smith you know, as a, right. as a as a as a woman who just thinks about her own experience in motherhood and in nurturing, and as she comes to the end of her life, in just moments of reflection, begins to realize that well, of course, this love that that's coming through her that she experiences in nurturing and in parenting, as she experiences towards her own children, that that is that is the love of God that she's actually experiencing, coming in in touch with. So I would I would agree that it. Yeah. In general, that it's that that women mystics seem to be able to seem to be able to get in touch with this, even when the tradition around them was yeah. kind of hostile to it. Right. Yeah. So there's certain ways that, more broadly, there's certain ways which these these Rhineland mystics, the, the German ones I mentioned, tried to covertly, you know, say that. Well, they're trying to bypass this idea that women are this traditional idea that women are emotional and unintellectual, you know, they can't 
do theology or they can't do philosophy. Uh, but they, they did it by ironically playing the rules, so to speak, you know, by, by saying that, you know, I, because I'm a woman, I, you know, just humbly saying, proposing this might be the case, <laughs> you know, um, that's kind of the way that they try to subvert covertly the, um, the dominance of, of male thinking in, in philosophy and theology. Um, it's a tactic you find, in other words, like all over the place in, in pre-modern contexts. So not just in like 13th or 14th century Germany, you know. But yeah, anyway, that's an interesting tangent, I guess, to talk about. Yeah. You mentioned in our yeah. conversation, or no, you mentioned earlier in this conversation yeah. that you had grown up in a fairly moderate kind of Baptist yep. environment. It wasn't hard. It wasn't a sort of a hardcore fundamentalism that you might find in like American Baptist fundamentalism, Southern Baptist fundamentalism. Yeah. But you mentioned, so kind of an Arminian viewpoint and in the, within the Arminian viewpoint is the idea that, well, God gives grace to all and wants all to be saved. But the problem is God has to give free will to people and then the people will use the free will to their own, you know, to their own ruin. And that's something that also that, that, uh, that Copan really yeah. emphasizes in the article is that, well, you know, God gives free will to people. And so they use that free will to their own, uh, to their own demise. So mm -hmm. what are some, what are some of your thoughts about that? The first intuition that made me a universalist really was actually thinking about this problem. So I tacitly held to C.S. Lewis's view, you know, that hell is locked on the inside. I didn't think about how problematic, I, I didn't see any problems in this. I just thought, you know, because we live in, in a culture where, you know, freedom is um, individual, self-determination is important, right? I just thought, you know, and critically that God letting people choose their own way, God saying to them, you will be done rather than they saying to God, you will be done to quote C.S. Lewis there, right? I thought that that was just like, that made sense, you know, and it was, but then the, th the thing that made me uh, shaken or realize, shaken that belief and made me realize that it is, um, doesn't make any sense. It's just like thinking about a, a simple, so there was a simple analogy, a really simple analogy that, that David Bentley Hart gave. It was a journal article that he wrote on universalism, or maybe it wasn't, on, it wasn't directly on it, but the, this journal article made its way into one of the one of the meditations into his book that all should be saved um parts of it so the analogy is it, is it is it does it happen to be uh, god creation and evil the moral meaning of creation yes. ex nihilo yes it was that chapter so the first chapter yeah so he, there was a a journal article that corresponded to parts substantial parts of that chapter yeah anyway so the analogy that he mentioned, I'm not sure whether it was mentioned in the article or might have been mentioned adjacent to the article somewhere else, but the, the simple analogy was just like, imagine a parent who allows them, who allows their child to be thrown into a fire, like a fireplace, you know, just to be thrown into a fire and then the parent does nothing about it. Would you call that parent responsible or like, you know, yeah, the, the parent in the analogy, yeah. the child, the child is, I think, thrusting their hand into the fire. Yeah, something like that. You can obviously add just specific details, whatever, to make it however you want it. But the point is, like, is does is that like, does that show that the parent is loving, that to let them do what they want? And then, I mean, the obvious answer is no. <laughs> it 
doesn't. But I, I've received some pushback in using this analogy by you know traditional defenders of how and and they say that oh this is not a, a completely accurate analogy you know but um, it doesn't completely it's not the best analogy to use to describe the best view of the free will defense or whatever. But I don't, I think that just misses the point of the analogy. I mean, all analogies are imperfect, right? But, but you tell analogies in order to convey a specific meaning, right? And then the, the meaning or the purpose of this analogy is just to acknowledge that when a child does an action, which is not just harmful, but, mortal like devast you know irreparably harmful you know it kills them essentially you know can kill basically kill them right the parent does not firstly the at the at the least the parent does not stand by you know and just mm-hmm. let them do what they want so that minimally the parent doesn't do that but maximally the parent would actually try to save at least try to save even if, even if they couldn't save right the child right so but then this just gets into the problem of whether God can desire or, you know, what want or to be saved yet not be able to achieve that. So that's the uh, response essentially that Copen gives in that chapter, chapter eight, where he's like, he says something like, uh, God is the uh, potential savior of all, but not the actual savior of all. <laughs> Which I think yeah, is I think a... Christ, yeah, he says that Christ is the potential <laughs> savior of all, not the actual savior of all. Yeah, which I, I've, I've always found that distinction just, yeah, silly because, yeah, I mean, it ultimately leads to a dualism in God, right? Once you, once you look at it from the eschatological horizon, right? Where God's permissive will and his eternal will have to, in some sense, collapse or be coincide or be the same. You know, that's just, and, well, unless, and, 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 yeah. And I think what David Bentley Hart did for yeah. me Yes, I I, I kind of had the same thing. I had the, the yeah. I had the concern about free will, and what David Bentley Hart helped me to see is that well, any person that is fully illumined as to their situation, but still chooses contrary to their well being, is just insane. You can that couldn't happen. If you were fully aware of what was in your best interest, then you would choose that. You would. And you would make the choice in perfect freedom. To make a choice against your best interest is to be deluded at some level. And so this is the same thing that Origen said, that he could, that God could secure the final salvation of all without violating people's free will, because people that were moving away from their created identity as a child of God were under some kind of delusion. And so their wills were not free. And so right. that's how sin makes us slaves. Mm-hmm. But when we're set free, when the will is set free from its slavery to sin, and when it's set free from all those delusions, then it, w- it would return home and that would be no violation of, of free will. And I guess also reading David Bentley Hart made me sort of realize that maybe I had, uh, speaking of cultural influence, because being in the United States, everything is about liberty and freedom yeah. and the ability to t- determine one's own destiny. When I started looking at the scriptures, I saw a lot in there about God's sovereignty and that mm. God finally being the one whose ultimate will will be realized. And then First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, God ultimately being all in all. So that made me rethink it may be that I'll just say it put the category of free will in a different light. 
for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I s- had a somewhat similar experience, though not exactly the same as you, because I guess for me, my what convinced me of universalism was never the biblical arguments. It wasn't like a biblical case. I mean, I know that you can like make biblical cases. Universalists have made it like Robin Perry, you know, like mainly. But like for me, as I say, it was really just that philosophical intuition of, well, a series of philosophical intuitions, one of which was the one I, the analogy, that simple analogy I just mentioned about, you know, whether um, a parent would allow their child to be thrown into the fire, right? And I, I think, I mean, yeah, th- this is, I know to a, a conservative evangelical who is still, who does not believe in universalism, or at least they say they do not believe in universalism, whether they actually do in their heart is possible. Um, they believe mm-hmm. that they believe, you know, as David Finley Hart says, they believe in their belief. Their response would be like to this, what I'm saying is to try to say that the Bible trumps your emotions and your philosophical intuitions or whatever. But then that just gives rise to the this, the problem, which which by the way, Copen's aware of this problem. I, I should have fully um, put into mention this now. So like, there's a quote somewhere in the chapter where he says something like, oh, "We must hold to our views on how tentatively, because if it's really the case that eternal the traditional view is actually unjust, or you know, creates conflict between God's goodness and the traditional picture of God, then we must ab- we must abandon." He says that himself, Copen. So he recognizes that in principle, you know, that philosophy and theology or philosophy in the Bible, they can't actually conflict. They have to be in some ways consonant, you know. But nevertheless, we still have this majoring in on the Bible as this inerrant construct, which we read flatly to support the traditional view, right? So I guess that's that's just the source of... The disagreement but this does this this doesn't mean that i am elevating my experience over the word of god or you know? <laughs> so like the common response is like you know a lot of more progressive evangelical or progressively minded people they, they like to emphasize experience of god you know whereas we need to test our experience against the bible and tradition and you know all these other sources which are more important right but the obvious response is to say that they are also influenced by the everyone's influenced by the experience, their particular experience within the culture of American evangelicalism, right, is one that reinforces these retributive intuitions of, of punishment, right, and in a conditional way of thinking of God and His love for His um, creation. So, yeah, we don't really get anywhere. <laughs> In conversations, do we, uh, when you miss the, the underlying source of... I think what I've noticed is that when it comes to philosophy, clear thinking is important. And sometimes people can use the Bible to make points that don't end up logically working out, that that can that they logically don't all work out together. So like okay. we have to test about whether the things that were coming up in the way that we use the Bible actually you're philosophically coherent. And I would say somebody that that's where somebody like David Bentley Hart is helpful to test the philosophical coherence of the biblical arguments that we are making. And I think what he's helped me to see is that it is possible to make, to have a Christianity where you do have reference to scriptures. There is a scriptural foundation for it, but it also is philosophically coherent. And it, and it all works together to reveal 
a God of true love who's intent on reconciling the whole creation and saving everyone. And in order to do this, it's not just a modern exercise that we're doing because we actually have the, the deposit in the ancient tradition of the church from people like Gregory of Nyssa or Origen or others who, who had already kind of thought these things through. And once I, once I began to feel free to be, begin to do that over time, I was able to put together sort of my own approach to a Christian universalism that did appeal to scripture, but it also appealed to reason and it also appealed to the ancient tradition of the church. And so that was just a really wonderful moment when I realized I was going to be able to do all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I, I respect and can make, you know, understand pe- people who have had similar journeys to you, you know, of um, trying to make holistic sense, you know, of how scripture and tradition and reason and or philosophy, you know, can come together and make sense of universalism. I've had, you know, as I said, I think I alluded earlier, I haven't had the exact same experiences as that, you know, because as I say, like I wasn't really ever, well, there was one period at the beginning where I took a little bit of stock in like biblical arguments relating to the Ionios translation, you know, whatever to do with um, Mm -hmm. Matthew 25, 46. But I I later just realized, you know, that that wasn't the real reason, the underlying motivation for my for my um, change of view or or my deepening of my prior intuition. Like, it, it, it really, yeah, like, I think it just comes, for me, it came down to, like, just, well, it's the same as, I mean, even though Hart and I don't always agree on how we, for universalism, there's one point in which I completely agree, not just agree with him, but, like, I resonate with his journey, if you will, or his his approach to this topic is that like he says you know that if universalism christian universalism were not true then he would not be a christian he would abandon the faith and i mean for me it's the same thing like it's a, a matter of like vindicating god's just or theodicy you know god's justice right because i i know other t- religions that present a god that you know like mahayana buddhism you know with the bodhisattvas as, as Hart mentions at the beginning of his book right i know other traditions that present a more compassionate image you know <laughs> Than the dominant Christian tradition, so I would, you know, happily um, well, you not mentioned, necessarily you, you, abandon Christianity, but I would. What's the word? Like I would be a more eclectic, yeah, eclectic or pluralistic, you know, Christian slash Buddhist or, or whatever. Like if it so happened that it has to be the case that tra- well, you um, mentioned yeah. you mentioned yeah. Uh, intuition, yeah, and that kind of that kind of fits into the human experience, and uh, yeah, when I um interviewed Douglas Campbell, he mm. said, we need to avoid what he considers to be the problem of a foundationalism, right. which is where we get into just strictly making mm. philosophical or logical arguments about all of this, because what happens is we have moments of revelation, of, of mm. inbreaking, and it's because we have those moments that it starts to change our way of, of thinking. So we're not we're not just walking along sort of some purely logical path. We're going along and there are certain moments where we experience, a, like you said, an intuition or something resonates deep with inside us and we have a change of perspective. Right, or an then, epiphany, you can call it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have an epiphany yeah. or, he, he, you know, he, he compared it. Yeah. Same, yeah, same so thing. like yeah. the apostle, yeah. the apostle Paul, after he had his encounter on the road to Damascus, 
he was still looking at his same scriptures. Yeah. But now he was, and he was, now he was, he was thinking about all of it, but he'd had an experience. Something mm-hmm. had, something, you know, had changed that made him look at things and, and experience things differently. And that was part of the experience that I had at a certain point. I just had an epiphany, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. And yeah. suddenly I saw it differently. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just based on logic. It was, it was a variety of things that happened. And then you just have a moment. Well, and it's hard to communicate that moment to somebody else right. who hasn't had the moment. Mm-hmm. And so it, this isn't just a, an exercise in logic. It's also having had some kind of revelatory experience which is why I enjoy so much having the opportunity to talk somebody to talk to yeah. somebody like you because and others is because even though we might not put it together in the same way yeah. if we're trying to make a rational argument out of it we both it had that experience of this deep intuition mm-hmm. that has been revelatory for us and sort of changed the change the terms or change the way put it is almost like it puts a new set of glass puts a new set of glasses on you and you just start seeing things differently yeah absolutely and i i think you you mentioned earlier that one of the things that made people universalist is having this um intuition that's rooted in parenting you know like so they mm-hmm. become a parent and then they realize that th- that they don't, just can't discipline their children in a conditional way you know like the way that maybe their parents raise them or, or whatever but you need to have that experience first. Like you need to realize that you love your child as a parent, you know, un- really unconditionally. And well, not just that you say that you love them unconditionally, but they feel it, right? They feel that that feel loved unconditionally. I talked to somebody recently who had yeah. that exact same experience. They said when they had their child, he said something just came over him. He had an intuitive experience that he would do absolutely anything to protect this child. And he said, just that experience unlocked Mm. other spiritual insights for him. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's probably one of the, maybe not the best ways, but that could be a way that evangelicals come to change their mind potentially. Cause like I know evangelicals who recognize that this conditional way of parenting is wrong, you know, so they've, you know, criticized it. Right. And so, in other words, there's a kind of tension that they might have in their minds between, you know, like, okay, I as a parent love my child in this unconditional way and I don't, you know, I I try, I don't or at least try not to think in a way which kind of just rewards them for when they do good and then punishes them if they do bad or, you know, whatever. Instead, I want to primarily... I'm primarily concerned for their well-being and how how they grow as a person, right? So there might be some evangelicals or people who already think like that with their children and they at least try to realize that's a good thing right but then the picture of god is worse like it's like you as a parent do a better job than your picture of god like what is that how do you make sense of that mm-hmm. so i think yeah at least i've heard some people say that i mean it might for those who want to maintain their view their traditional view making appealing to a parent analogy like that might seem ad hoc you know like it might they might try to point out certain flaws in it or or whatever because like if you especially if you're a classical theist who wants to emphasize more the distinction or the difference between god and creatures right you you might want to 
say that God is only analogously like a parent, not the same, not in the exact same way, right? You know, so that might be a common objection. Well, David, but David, then, David, yeah, David Bentley Hart makes that, the point. Yeah. He makes the point that it, well, it's Jesus himself yeah. that encourages us to think analogically <laughs> about exactly. God as a as a parent, as a father, as a loving father. Yeah. So exactly. So like, if you want to, in other words, be a Christian, someone who thinks like Christ, has the mindset of Christ, as Paul talks about, then you, yeah, want to. Okay, so what you're talking about is a kind of intuition into the mindset of Christ that comes from parenting. Mm. Yeah, so if you want to be a Christian and therefore, you know, want to imitate the mindset of Christ, then you will take seriously the analogical language that Jesus is, Jesus uses, you know, regarding God as Father, rather than dismiss it as just an you know an analogy or the point is, this is how you should think as a Christian. You know, you should follow how Jesus, how Jesus guess, love. Yeah. I guess one of the things, and I'll just we'll just kind of talk about this in in wrapping things up. Is you're you're yeah. a younger person, and I think what I'm noticing now is that within people of evangelical backgrounds, that younger people are more willing to rethink some of these types of things, and especially as they're encountering arguments from people like David Bentley Hart and having access to, you know, education that you would get in a history program or something like that, that would, that would help you to see a a bigger picture of things that there is, I guess, within the, I'll call the younger evangelical mind, a kind of willingness to rethink some of these basic issues. And there's, I'm noticing a very vibrant conversation that's going on among people that have your kind of background. And it seems to me a considerable group of you that are starting to feel like somehow that Christian universalism holds everything together the the best. There still might be certain scriptures you might not know exactly what to do with, or but overall, when if you look at the whole thing, it's that it's that Christian universalism fits together the best. It allows you to stay within the within the Christian tradition, and you're just happy to have discovered that it also fits in with your deepest intuition about what love is. Exactly. Yeah. It, it allows me to actually love Christ, you know, as, as being the Logos of God incarnate, you know, like it would not make sense for me to believe in it at the same time the incarnation and eternal and eternal traditional view of tradition, eternal conscious torment like it would just be it would conflict so much to be like a basically a contradiction you know <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so i really do think it gets at the heart of the the core of christianity if you believe that in the person of christ is revealed unconditional love so not just love that's dependent on what you do right but um, a love that's dependent on who you are as someone made in the image of God, then you have you should have a problem, a huge problem, and also believe you know maintaining a, um, the traditional view of hell because well it's just a fact at the end of the day that the traditional view of hell depends on not believing that God is someone who loves you unconditionally, but rather loves you conditionally, you know, but conditioned on believing in Him or following him or, uh, you know, other qualifications, right? 
in, in my thinking in my thinking about this, I came to put it this way, that I came to believe that God doesn't love us just if we get things right. God loves us until we get things right. And that's just the depth of his perfecting love is that it, it it's always with us. It's always working, whether we're working with it or against it. And finally, we'll just have these this revelation, this moment of understanding that this is who we are created to be and all of the love will all line up. And when that happens, then for that one person, there will be full reconciliation between them and God and that God will ultimately be able to achieve this with all of God's children. And then when that happens, God will be all in all, as I think we can find uh, yeah. that Paul talking about 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Right. I think it's ultimately a mystery as to what it means for for all creation to be fully reconciled to God, or what does it mean to be fully? I mean, it, it can't mean that you fully know. Oh, sorry, that you reach a point like a, an end point where you have achieved complete knowledge of God or complete union, and then you know that's the end of the story. You're perfect. You know, <laughs> I, I tend to like, um, well, not just like, but agree with Gregory of Nyssa's image of epictasis of or an infinite kind of stretching out or infinite growing in knowledge of of god um never ends right like so there's a so in other words there's a sense in which even if we eventually get it right in the sense that we know that we are reconciled to god and loved by god this is another sense in which we never actually fully get it right or fully get god you know right but yeah i, I think you know what i'm trying well, to I say i think that's yeah. a nice it, yeah i think that's a nice idea that there's there is, um, I think when you know, Origen had the idea that at the end of the ages, God would be all in all, but that would not be the end of the story. That would be, in a way, the beginning of another one, that it's not the end yeah. of the ages. The end of the ages would be the end of God's creative purpose to finally be God, all in all, but that's not the end of time because God is supra-temporal. And then somehow we will all be participating in God's all in all. And what that will be like, it will, yeah. won't be a static, won't be a static experience. No. Yeah. And, and I think that's important to emphasize as well to, to listeners, um, to, you know, whether they're Christian or not, is that help heaven or growing, ever growing communion with God is not a static, boring thing. It's not, heaven's not, you know, just like, I don't know, playing harps in heaven or listening to worship music or, or playing, you know, singing. <laughs> it's, it's, you need to really, um, I, I've always liked uh, Maximus the Confessor's paradoxical language of, so he, he uses, um, in Greek, it means um, ever-moving rest. So this is, you know, it's a, it's a rest, or I, I, I think you've talked to David Bentley Hart about this before. It, it's, it's kind of a satisfaction, yet not a complete satisfaction you know you're still drawn forth to want to know more about god and to love god so that's the moving part ever moving but then you're also resting in that each time right so infinitely so yeah well that's a that's a wonderful vision and samuel i want to thank you for taking time to share uh, your journey with us and your best thoughts with us And uh, God bless you, and I'll look forward to the next time that our paths cross. 
Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.